Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's good to see you all. If you have a Bible, point it to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 2 Corinthians 13. And many, many thanks to the army of people that it takes to serve us so faithfully and so well every week in our children's programs and up here on the stage. Corey and Mary, thank you again for uh, your selflessness and service of the Lord toward us. Um, This is the last sermon in our series in 2 Corinthians, and I uh, just wanted to say uh, how thankful I am uh, to, to, to you all for allowing me uh, to, to teach this book to you every week. It is really among the greatest pleasures of my life that I get to spend hours, hundreds of hours in one book and to work through it together with you in, in a community like this one. And uh, I, I thank you again for the generosity of so many of you that have enabled me uh, as your pastor to serve you in that way every week. It is a joy, a deep joy. And I love teaching the Bible and I get to do it as a full-time job and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Second Corinthians chapter 13, one last time. I'm gonna read uh, verses 11 down to 14. And uh, we're going to pray together and um, spend about 45 minutes uh, wrapping this, this wonderful little book up. So let's go, to, uh, let's go to the book and read it, and then I'll pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, you predestined us to adoption as sons. Thank you, Father, for that electing love. That you would choose us, a people, rebel, rebels to your cause, rebels to your will, a people without God and without hope in this world, a people under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, that you would look upon us and love us And forgive us and bring us into your family and give us your word and encourage us by your spirit to become like your son. Thank you. As we once again go to 2 Corinthians, be with us. Open our eyes to the truth that we find there. May these just not be words on a paper, but they may be eternal words of life from the very lips of Jesus to the very soul of every person here. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. What makes you happy? 
What makes you happy? Good food? A job well done? Good weather? A good book? A new outfit? Good friends? A clean home? Organization? The ocean? Mountains? Blueberry pie? The return of football? What makes you happy? Maybe you have a hard time answering that question. I mean, it's not hard to identify things that give you feelings of happiness. But to be in a state of happiness and to feel happy, those are two different things, right? Yet it's almost un-American to not know what makes you happy. I don't need to tell you that this country had its beginnings as we declared independence from tyranny on the basis that we wanted to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And if we can't answer the question, what makes us happy? Thomas Jefferson's going to be ticked. Well, smart people with degrees spent a lot of money researching happiness, and they've identified three elements of happiness. According to their research, happiness is by 50% a genetic predisposition. So by 50%, some of us are just predisposed to being happy. Others are predisposed to being grumpy. It's in your genes. You're genetically a grump. The other element of happiness by 40% is actually our actions and our thoughts. What we do and what we think affects our happiness. And the last 10%, according to the research, is your circumstances. 50% genes, 40% your habits, and 10% circumstances. Now, let's imagine that's true. I don't know if it's true or not. Let's imagine it is true. If that's true, who would be the happiest person? Who is the one person who is most predisposed to happiness, most consistently able to right behavior and right thought, and most able to control their circumstances? Who would be that person, the most, the highest one? I submit to you my answer. God. God is the happiest being in the universe. I don't know if you've ever thought about God being a happy God, but it's true. 1 Timothy 1.10 refers to the gospel of the glory of the happy God. Now, your Bible, your translation of the Bible uses the more spiritual word, blessed. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. But that word blessed can mean happy. God is eternally and infinitely happy. There is no one happier than God. And that is good news. That is a gospel of the glory of God. It's exactly what you would want, right? Who would want to spend eternity with a melancholy God? 
Have you ever spent an hour with a melancholy person? My family sure has. It saps you of energy. But someone who is overflowing with joy, that person is life-giving. That's God. A fountain of joy and happiness. What makes God so happy? What is God's 50-40-10 formula? 50% of what makes God happy is God. 40% of what makes God happy is God. And 10% of what makes God happy is God. What makes God happy? God does. Do you remember the baptism of Jesus? The Son of God was baptized in water. He came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. And the Father in heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father was saying, He makes me happy, He brings me pleasure. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. This is Jesus in John 14, 30. I love the Father. This is Jesus in John 5, 4, 5, 20. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. All of this through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit stirs up the delights of the Father in His Son, stirs up the delights of the Son in the Father, inflaming and binding their love together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that's how it's been forever and ever. One of the most incomprehensible wonders of all is that this infinitely happy God causes that love that he has in himself to overflow its banks and pours that love out on sinners, hell-deserving sinners like us. And God, through Christ, invites sinners into the fellowship of the Trinity. Enabling us to enjoy Him as He enjoys Him. John seventeen twenty six, Jesus prayed that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Cornerstone, at the moment that you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you were wiped clean and brought safely into the white, hot love of God in the fellowship of the Godhead. And there you will always be. Heaven is the experience of sharing the happy God's endless delight in being God. I'm going to say that again. Heaven is the experience of sharing in the happy God's endless delight in being God. Wonder of wonders this. That is just the thing we see 
in the closing words of 2 Corinthians. God, the eternally happy one, has brought sinners into his happy community. This is just what Paul meant by this benediction in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Cornerstone, as followers of Christ, you are members of the family of God tethered to the local gathering of this happy family, his church. Paul wraps up his letter to the Corinthians in six imperatives. They come in quick succession, most of them just one word in the original language. Six imperatives, commandments from God. We'll look at God's command to be happy in verse 11, first part. Then we'll look at the commands to, to commit to unity in verses 11 and 13. And then we'll see the grounds for that commitment to unity are found in him. And then lastly, before we wrap up, we're going to look at uh, four different observations that uh, can be made from our time together in 2 Corinthians. So if you're good at math, this is a, an 11-point sermon because we wanted to finish well, so you're welcome. Here's the big idea. We are a happy people committed to unity because God is among us. We are a happy people committed to unity because God is among us. So let's get to work in verse 11. The first part of verse 11, the apostle says, Finally, brothers and sisters... Rejoice. That's a command. With God among you, God's people work. God's people do. With God among them, God's people do. I say it like that for a reason, because whenever you look at imperatives in the Bible, it's important that you remind yourself of the indicatives in the Bible. Now, if you're not an English nerd like me, what that means is that what God has done precedes what we are supposed to do. What God has done undergirds what we are supposed to do. We do based on what God has done, and we can't get that flipped around. If we get that flipped around, we've missed the entire point. It's not do so that God will do. It's God has already done, therefore do. Every major religion tells you what you need to do to get to God. Only Christianity says this is what God has done to get to you. So we start with what God has done. In his great pleasure, he showed the greatness of his grace to sinners like us. God wrapped himself in humanity, became a man, took the penalty of sin, washed us by his blood, and mercifully brought us into his happy community. He made us his own. And it wasn't because of anything that he saw in us or even foresaw in us. If you are a Christian, it is not because of something you did that deserved God's grace or mercy. It was not because of some wise choice that you made. You are here today, if you are a Christian, simply because of God's grace. By grace alone, we are saved. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. He loved them not because they were lovely. They, loved, they were lovely because he loved them. 
the infinitely happy God has set his love on you. That's what makes you lovely. The spirit of God drew you to the son of God and gave you faith to believe in God. And you repented of your sin and you were added to his number into God's happy family. I say this at the beginning because we all need to remind ourselves of this daily. Especially for those of you who have been Christians for a while. Especially those of you who are seeing the Holy Spirit's work in your life and you're beginning to bear fruit because of his work in your life. You become tempted to think that God loves you because you obey him. I also say it because there may be unbelievers among us. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that anyone who is here who is a Christian didn't become a Christian because they were really good. No, we were like you. Empty, without hope, weary, helplessly addicted to ourselves, under the judgment of God, but God in his great kindness drew us to himself and saved us, filled us with his spirit, gave us a new heart with new joys and new affections and satisfied us in Christ and then joined us to his happy community called his church. And all of that was because of grace. It was free. So lock that in your mind and don't forget it ever. It is all of grace. So now that you have that, Now we look at the commandments. There are six of them. Six commandments from God on high. What does God expect of you, dear Christian? What does the God of heaven command? Here's the king in his declaration, the scroll unrolled. And the king declares this. Be happy. The command from God on high is this. Joy. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. The word means to be in a state of happiness, in a state of well-being. What does the Almighty require of you? To be happy. That word, rejoice, was such a thing in the New Testament, in this new church. It became a greeting. In fact, it's the very word that Jesus used when he greeted the disciples after the resurrection. Matthew chapter 28, when the ladies found the tomb empty and the angel told them that Jesus had risen, the Bible says they ran to tell the disciples and both Jesus met them and said, greetings, rejoice, it's that very word. It's the word that Paul uses in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. Are you getting it? This is a command from God. God commands joy. Cornerstone, be happy. It's biblical. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your sins are forgiven. The wrath of God has been satisfied. You have been brought into God's pleasure in His Son. Friend, the Christian life is not about rule keeping. It's primarily about rejoicing in God. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Rules but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are a community of joy, a happy people. Back in chapter 7, Paul said that he rejoiced at the joy of Titus. 
our rejoicing, it's contagious. It's infectious. So that when I'm not feeling joyful, I need you, brother and sister, and the joy that you have in the Lord to spill out of your life and into mine. We are a happy people, committed to unity. We see this in the next five imperatives. Verse 11 on to verse 13. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The next set of imperatives are one, one word apiece in, in the original language. Aim for restoration is one word that means put things into order. There are some things that are out of sync and you need to set them right. It's the same word that was used in the New Testament for mending nets that had broken. It's fixing something that's broken. There were problems in the Corinthian church and they needed fixing. This was a command for the whole church to be involved in the process of fixing the problems. Among one of the most surprising elements of being a part of a church is that our problems, our sins, are very much one another's business. Paul tells the Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore, that's the same word, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When there are errors in the church, when there are errors in theology and errors in practice, we need to correct them. Paul has already given them instructions on how to correct them in this letter. And now at the end of the letter, he's telling them, all right, y'all get to work. Start putting these things into practice. It's not about head knowledge. It starts there, affects the heart, and then moves out to the hands. We got to do something. One of the biggest kind of uh, eye-opening things that ever hit my life as a young Christian was that when I sit under the preaching of God's word, this revelation of God to me isn't ever meant to just stop here. It's meant to go from here to others. It's supposed to go through me to others. Next he says, comfort one another. One word which means encourage Instill someone with courage. It means cheer someone up. This word is a favorite of the Apostle Paul's in this letter. He uses it often. Remember, he used it a lot back in chapter 1. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we received and are comforted by God. You have been comforted by God. Use your comfort to comfort others. You see here again, we see the happy community of God being satisfied in Christ, pouring themselves into one another, caring enough to get involved in one another's life, humbly and helpfully building one another up, encouraging one another. Next he says, agree with one another. It means think the same thing. Set your mind on the same things. He uses it in Philippians 2 too. Complete my joy in being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We agree with one another. Scripture is our standard. In order to have unity, we must be resolutely, humbly pursuing Scripture, the truth of God in His Word. If we are to have any hope of unity, we must be 
one in Christ. Always reforming what we believe, conforming ourselves to God's inerrant, unchangeable word. It is theology done in community. Unity in this church is not about having unity with one another. It's about having unity to Christ together, which produces unity with one another. Our unity is about being one in Christ. And so it's critical that we get to know him as he has revealed himself in his word. This is Paul's appeal to Corinth. Pursue truth together, Corinth. Do theology together, Corinth. This is why here at Cornerstone, we do theology together. We do books of the Bible verse by verse together. If the Lord would give us any good effect in his kingdom here in Piqua, it will be because we appeal to and apply to God's word. We are informed by and formed by God's word. So what we do on Sundays and what we do throughout the week is informed by scripture. It is our authority. Pastor Brent and I are not the authority. The scripture is authority. We are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's only by pursuing biblical faithfulness that we will have any hope for peace, which is the fifth imperative. Live in peace. Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Understand, this is an action word. Live in peace. Keep the peace. Work for peace. Notice the promises of God and the presence of God are promised here. God, the God of love, the God of peace. As a community of faith, united to Christ, we reflect the unity that he has in his Godhead. The God who is love, the God who is peace, shines forth gloriously. The love and peace that we have in our life from this church, from his church, who are collectively formed to the image of his son. And then we come to verse 12, the last imperative. And the one that may make you squirm a little bit. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The happy community of God is warm in her affections for one another. It was common in Paul's day for men to kiss cheek-to-cheek men. And women to kiss cheek-to-cheek women. It was a greeting. It's a custom that's practiced in many parts of the world today. When I was in Ukraine, the men used to kiss one another on the mouth. It was really uncomfortable at first, but they would just seriously line it up. My friend uh, Peter tells me that he was a missionary in Turkey. He tells me that it's, it's common in, in Turkey for men when they're walking down the street to hold hands. The holy kiss was a greeting as a way of showing and demonstrating affection for one another. It's a way to endear yourself to another person. Not many churches in the West practice the holy kiss. Some do, and I'm sure it's beautiful, if not off-putting to visitors. It sort of has taken on a different cultural meaning in our day. And that's not to say that we can't show affection for one another. Because in showing affection for one another is a, is a vital part of being a part of the church. Didn't Jesus say that they will know you by the love that you have for one another? 
when Paul is instructing us to show affections for one another, we need to obey him. Now, perhaps kissing might not be culturally understood in the same way as it was then, but there are other ways of showing affection for one another. We hug a lot in this church. Maybe that's one way. Hugging is a good way of showing affection. When was the last time you saw a man hugging a man outside of church? It just doesn't happen very often. Women do it. Women do it all the time. Women hug for no reason at all, just because they like hugging. Women are just better at that than men are. In fact, women are just better at most things than men are. Things that matter, anyway. So, at the very least, we need to repent of our stodgy, stoic affections and seek to improve the ways in which we show affection for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Whatever that looks like in this culture, let's seek to figure it out and honor the Lord by obeying this commandment. Then he says, all the saints greet you. He's reminding the Corinthians that they, they have problems, but they're a church of God, but they're not in this alone. They're not the only church out there. They're one gathering of the universal church, and this is a precious reality. This is why Pastor Brent and I often pray for other churches, even from the pulpit, because we want everyone to know that we're not the only church out here preaching the only gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel, but there are many churches, and so we pray for those churches, We pray that God would grow those churches. We pray that God would bring baptisms in those churches because we want to see the kingdom of God advancing, not just through us, but through everyone who calls on the name of Christ and preaches the true gospel. It's it's a happy joy that we get to partner with what God is doing elsewhere. We are a happy people committed to unity because, verse 14 says, God is among us. God is among us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here we have a beautiful Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit. The only hope that we have in fruitfulness and unity is that God would be among us. And so we must pray. Members of Cornerstone Piqua, pray like like Moses prayed. Unless you go, we will not go. Unless you go before us, we will not go up. Unless you lead us, we will not go. We are the sheep of your pasture. And unless you lead, we will stay here. Our ability to follow the commands of God laid down in Scripture The commands laid down in these verses are grounded in the presence of the Lord among us. That's why I said earlier that it's not really that important that we will be united with one another as much as being united to Christ together. Our unity is based on Christ. And we will see the unity in our body so long as we're focusing on and working toward the unity that we see in God. The Father has eternally known and eternally loved the Son. The Son has eternally known and eternally loved the Father. And the Spirit searches the deepest delights of the Father and gathers them and collects them and fastens their fulfillment to the desires in God, the Son. And this goes on 
forever. By God's grace, he sends his spirit to his people to form them into the image of his son. Cornerstone, when you love Jesus, you are becoming like God. You are sharing in his delight because this is what makes God happy. His son. You are like God when you find your happiness in Jesus. So much is based on God's love for his son. Why would God create you? Why would God create anything? Was it because God was lonely? Up there for millions and millions of eons without time. He just got lonely and decided, let there be light. Was it because God was missing something that there's always, there's maybe, there's like a man-shaped hole in God's heart so that he was like, had to create something so that he was, no. It wasn't because God was lonely and it wasn't because God was missing something. God created because he was so happy in himself that he wanted to communicate that delight in him with others, with you, if you're in Christ. He wanted to share his joy in Jesus with you. The delight of God in his son, his infinite happiness in himself is the basis of the community that we seek in the church. We delight in him together. He is our common joy. That's what I mean. We're happy people committed to unity because God is among us. I want to end our time together considering four observations that have surfaced throughout this series, these six months. I reread 2 Corinthians this week in my office. And um, who knows how many times I've read this book. Pages are well-worn. And I was still brought to tears reading this book. It is a precious book, which the Lord has written on my heart And I have found him to be a constant companion to me through this letter. And so there's a few things as I read this week that I wanted to just re-bring to the surface. I just thank God for these things. Four observations. Observation number one. In this letter we learn that whatever the problem, Jesus is the solution. It was true in Sunday school, it's true today. Whatever we need in crisis, when the seas are troubled in our life, what we need is to see Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is by seeing the glory of God that we will grow in the faith. And this makes sense because it was by seeing the glory of God that brought us into the faith. Chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. We were saved by seeing Jesus. And we will grow by the very same thing. Our situations are not improved by staring at the problem. They are only improved by staring at the beautiful glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, i.e. the problem, but to the things that are unseen, i.e. the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Cornerstone, look. Keep looking. Every day of your life, every morning you wake in the scriptures. It's a prayer I've probably prayed more than any other. Every morning before I sit down to read scripture, I say, Father, show me the glory of God in the face of Jesus and what I'm about to read. I don't need to know about what this king did to this king as much as I need to see. Where's Jesus? Show him to me, Lord. I am desperate to know him, to see him. I won't make it through today as your servant unless I see your son. Show him. And I promise God will be faithful to you as he has been to me all these years to show you Jesus. As he did on Wednesday in my office as I was reading this book I've read many times. Seeing Jesus. Seeing the patience of God. Seeing the kindness of the Lord. Observation one. Whatever the problem, Jesus is the solution. Observation two. This book teaches us that Jesus is enough. God is pleased to show us that Jesus is our sufficiency. Chapter 1, verse 9. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. God has shown in this book that our weaknesses are not, they don't turn God away. Our weaknesses incline us to God and God to us. It's so easy for us to be turned off by weaknesses in our own life and in others' lives. But God is so unlike that. The weaknesses he sees in us, he's attracted to it and draws us to him. Are you weary today? Turn to Christ. Are you lonely? Turn to Christ. You will find him closer than a brother. Third observation. That our faith is a community project. We've seen this over and over again in this book, that our faith is a community project. We are dependent on one another, interdependent, codependent on one another. 
This is how God has made us. When one of us is weak, we are weak together. When one of us is strong, we are strong together. And when one of us is comforted, that comfort goes to the others who need it. Chapter 1, verse 24, we work with you for your joy. I take Paul to be saying that your joy will not be complete unless we are working for you. God is working through us for you. Chapter 2, verse 4, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Even blessing, even God's blessing in our life is not for our sake, it's for others. Verse, chapter 9, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your faith is personal. It is never private. You need one another. And the reality is, in Christ, you have one another. Lastly, we have learned, perhaps most movingly to me, uh, the patience of our precious Savior. The patience of our precious Savior. Paul has been so like his Lord in this letter. Perhaps nowhere else in the New Testament has he been so gentle, so vulnerable, so tender, so patient. We saw, I think, last week maybe, even the, the thought of having to use his authority in a severe way, he hated the thought of it. And, and this, this patience, this meekness, this gentleness, this is the best news. Because like Corinth, we have a long way to go as a church. We have a long way to go as a people, just as individuals following Jesus. Some of us still think that reading the Bible is a good idea. Some of us approach Scripture as if it's a supplement to our already solid and good, happy life. In the way that an athlete takes supplements, that's how we read Scripture. It'll make us a little better for the day. But that's not true at all. We don't go to the scripture like an athlete goes to vitamin supplements. We go to the scripture like an, a poisoned man goes to an antidote. We have a long way to go. But the Lord has not and, and will not give up on us. May this letter humble us. May the Lord be pleased to deepen our resolve in knowing him and following him with faithfulness for years to come. May we be given a Christ-exalting trust in the spirit of God that he will work through his word on us to form us into the image of his son. That's what he's been doing for his church, just like this one in all parts of the world for thousands of years. Working, correcting, 
showing grace, showing patience. As they grow in Christ-likeness and fruitfulness for the sake of the gospel. But until then, we wait. We trust not in what we see today. We trust in what we will see in glory. A pure and spotless bride standing next to her perfect Savior. Until then, we walk by faith, not by sight. Making it our aim to please Him in all that we do. Amen? Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we go before the Lord and we pray together a prayer of confession. As the Lord has revealed himself in in his word, we pray that he would continue to do so. And we've recognized that uh, there's some ways in which we've not really walked out this passage in a way that's faithful to him, in a way that he deserves. But God is infinitely gracious and merciful. And so we go to him and we ask him for his mercy based on Jesus. So let's do that together. Father, as we bring this series to a close, first and foremost, we want to say thank you. You have been a faithful companion to us through this letter. You have used your word to shape this little church. May you continue to do so. Please continue to soften our hearts. Make us malleable in the master's careful hands. Lord, we repent for every way in which we have failed to apply the truths that we have learned in this letter. Forgive us for treating these words as good suggestions, good ideas. Forgive us for neglecting your word in our lives. Yours are the words of eternal life. And the great tragedy of our lives is that we're mostly bored with them. Lord, forgive us. What wonders you have shown us in this book that we would be your people called by your name. That we would be the beneficiaries of your grace. Lord, it's more than we can bear. Thank you that you have brought us into the delight that you have for your son so that we may turn from playing in mud to delighting in the Son of God. Will you grant to us a new vision, new eyes to see Jesus, to see his beauty and his glory, and may we look upon him and may we be changed. Grant us this week new affections for Christ, new delights in our great Redeemer. May we be filled with your Spirit as we serve your purposes in our home this week at work this week and should you so privilege us even to spend our lives advancing the good news of our happy God among the nations if you would send us pray this in Jesus name Amen your assurance comes from Psalm 130 verse 3 and 4 you can see it above me if you O Lord would mark our iniquities 
a Lord who could stand. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared.